Our text today comes out of Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through Matthew 4, uh, verse 11. So it's, it's a big chunk of scripture, and I would like to just read it and have all of us just have the whole story in our mind. And then we're going to go back through and break it down and look at it section by section. So let's read this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. I know that was a lot. We've got a lot to get through today, but I think this is going to be so helpful for us. So let's start at the beginning. In that first section of our text today, we see Jesus coming to get baptized. And if you remember, last week we talked about John the Baptist. John was Jesus' relative, and part of his ministry was um, offering this baptism for repentance and preparing Israel for the Messiah who was to come. So you can probably imagine the scene of, you know, a line of people in the Jordan River waiting for their turn, and they just, you know, step up, dunk, next, dunk, next, and here comes Jesus. He steps up, and John's like, wait a minute. Like, John had already identified Jesus as the Messiah, and he's like, what are you doing in my place? What am I doing in your place? I need to be baptized by you. They have a conversation, and John goes ahead and baptizes Jesus. But Jesus, he didn't need a baptism for repentance, right? My little son Owen this morning, as I was getting ready, he was like, hey mom, did Jesus ever sin? And I said, nope, nope, he didn't. And it's funny that he asked that question this morning, because that's a question that we would ask when we see Jesus getting baptized by John in this baptism of repentance. So if Jesus didn't need to be baptized because he had nothing to repent of, why was Jesus baptized? There's two reasons. First one is Jesus was baptized to identify with us, with you and with me. In Hebrews chapter two, it talks about the humanity of Jesus, that he was fully human. He was flesh and blood. And in being baptized, he fully identified himself with us. He lived for us. He fulfilled all righteousness for us. He died for us. He stood in our place so that one day we could stand in his place. 
But I think there's a second thing that's happening in this moment of baptism of Jesus, and that's that his baptism also clarified his identity. He identified with us, and it was also a moment of clarity for him. In Matthew 3.17, when the heavens opened after Jesus came up out of the water, the father spoke, and the words that he spoke over his son were this, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. It's a moment of clarifying his identity. What you might not know from a casual reading of this scripture is that this sentence is actually referencing Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. Psalm 2 was a messianic king psalm. It was about this anointed king who was going to come on the scene and usher in justice and inherit the nations. Psalm 2 paints a picture of a conquering, powerful king. And that's where the first part of this, these words from the father, this is my son, draws from, from other places in the Old Testament as well, but Psalm 2 specifically. And then the next thing that he says, with whom I am well pleased, that actually comes from Isaiah 42. Um, Isaiah 42 is a messianic prophecy about the suffering servant. This is where we find the words, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not put out. Isaiah 42, along with Isaiah 53, paints a picture of the Messiah to come who is this gentle, humble, suffering servant. And so in these words from heaven spoken by the Father to the Son, we are combining the powerful, anointed, conquering king and the gentle, humble, suffering servant. And, and God is saying, God the Father is saying, this is he, Jesus is both. He is the conquering king. He is the suffering ser- servant. So this is a moment of clarity of identity. The next thing that I think is really important for us to just stop and acknowledge, it might seem really obvious, but as soon as Jesus was baptized, there's no chapter breaks in the original Greek. If you were reading this in the original Greek, we go right from Matthew 3, from the end of Matthew 3 into Matthew 4 with no break. And what happens in Matthew 4, we're going to read it, is that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So we need to acknowledge the reality of evil, the reality of evil in the world. There is a real, intelligent, and personal evil that is at work in the world. It is behind all human sin, selfishness, and suffering. There is evil at work in the world. The biblical authors assumed this. Jesus assumed the reality of this. We can look at world history and just look at our own lived experience and recognize the truth of this. But it's worth noting because in today, in our modern world, to our modern sensibilities, there might be some pushback about that. Um, But there is no question that Jesus had no confusion about the reality of evil in the world. In um, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes this. I want to read verse 12 to you because I think it just emphasizes the fact that there is evil at work in the world, and that is who we are fighting against. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
There's a great quote by C.S. Lewis that I love. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors and theologians. And he says that we as humans make two equal and opposite mistakes when it comes to evil. We either don't believe at all, or we have such an unhealthy fascination with it. And evil in itself is equally pleased with both options. So we need to like shoot straight down the middle, acknowledge the reality of evil, but also know that Jesus came to destroy the power of the devil. In 1 John 3, 8, it says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. I don't think it's surprising that the first thing that Jesus does after his baptism, he's anointed by the Spirit. It's this moment of identity. The Father speaks these words over him. And the very next thing he does is he goes out into the wilderness and dukes it out with the devil. We experience this in our lives as well. I think there's baptism and then there's battle, right? There's the mountaintop experience followed by the valley. We shouldn't be surprised when we have moments where we encounter God in a new way, where we experience breakthrough, where we experience God's presence. And sometimes it's followed by a very uh, difficult set of circumstances, a time of doubt, a time of questioning, right? So that's the first thing I want us to notice as we're going through this is just there, there is a reality of evil and we're really going to dive in and look at um, how the tempter tempts Jesus in the wilderness. But before we do that, there's one other point that I want to make, and that is the connection to the Old Testament. In this narrative that we have about the temptation of Jesus, we are hearing echoes from the Old Testament. The gospel is very intentionally organized and designed, and Matthew was not, was not just like accidentally putting things in a particular order that causes us to see reflections from the Old Testament. Um, if you think back to the story of the Exodus, if you know this Bible story, God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, they wandered for 40 years. Oftentimes when we read through the scriptures and we see the number 40, that number represents a time of testing. It was certainly true of the Israelites in the wilderness. They ended up wandering because they did not trust and obey God. But here we have Jesus also in the wilderness, also for 40 days during his time of testing. But where Israel failed to trust and obey God, Jesus succeeds. Jesus is the true Israel. The story of Jesus in the wilderness is like a retelling of the story of Israel in the wilderness, but with a new ending. Remember, the purpose of God calling Israel out from among the nations was to make them a kingdom of priests. It was to bring blessing to the whole world through Israel, but because they failed to obey God and to trust God, the world did not get to experience the fullness of that blessing. But in Jesus, that blessing finds its fulfillment. He is the true Israel. But Jesus did not only come for Israel. He came for all of us, for you and for me, for all humanity. Jesus is also the true human. Think back to our foundation story 
In Genesis chapter 2 and 3, God created the world. He created Adam and Eve. He placed them in the garden to work it and to keep it. He commissioned them to partner with him to rule and reign over his good creation. But what happens in Genesis chapter 3? The tempter comes in and starts whispering in Eve's ear, did God really say that you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? We see the same tactic at work with Jesus in the wilderness, but unlike Adam and Eve who failed the test, just like you and I have failed the test to trust and obey God, Jesus succeeds. So he is the true Israel and he's also the true human. Jesus becomes human in order to be the kind of human that you and I were incapable of being. And because he becomes that kind of human, we can now become that kind of human. It's the paradigm of our faith. All right, let's jump into the three tests that Jesus faces in the wilderness. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time and really get into the meat of this text. Okay, so in the wilderness, the, the devil comes and he assaults Jesus. His assault is first and foremost on the identity of Jesus in his weapon is a lie. Just like in the Garden of Eden, I love this. This is Dallas Willard who originally said this, I think. He's a fantastic theologian. And he said, the devil didn't come after Eve with a stick or like a weapon. His weapon was just an idea. He came after her with an idea. He planted an idea in her mind. And we see the same thing happen with Jesus in the wilderness. That is what the devil attempts to do. It's come after him with an idea. And I really believe that when we choose to sin, it is almost always because we believe a lie about reality and a lie about what will make us happy. Saint Ignatius, who started the Jesuit order, he said, this was a very long time ago before the self-help movement, so don't hear this this way, but he said, at the root of all sin is a failure to trust that God has my ultimate deep happiness at heart. And I don't mean happiness like find your true self, you be you, but I mean that we were created by God and for God, and that we will only ever find ultimate satisfaction and contentment in him. But sin comes and tries to lie to us and make us believe that something else can satisfy us. So what we're going to look at is, is how the tempter came to Jesus and how Jesus responds and what it means for us. So let's just jump in. In Matthew 4, 3, the tempter comes and says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are the son of God, the tempter begins by questioning Jesus's identity. Now at the baptism, when Jesus came up out of the water, the words of the father were, you are my son, you are my son. And the tempter comes and says, if, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, then turn these stones to bread. The next thing that he does is he tries to undermine Jesus's trust in the Father. Now remember, Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he had been fasting that entire time. He was hungry. In his humanity, he was weak and he was hungry. And so 
the tempter tries to get Jesus to kind of play the God card, like throw off the mantle of the incarnation and his frail humanity and use his divine authority and power to meet his very real and very human need. But Jesus does not take the bait. He chooses to continue to trust and depend on the Father. This is how he responds. Matthew 4, 4. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy. And this passage in Deuteronomy is actually reflecting back on Israel in the wilderness and Israel's failure to trust God for their daily bread. God did provide bread for Israel in the wilderness in the form of manna that appeared faithfully every day as they needed, just exactly what they needed. But they still didn't trust him. And so Jesus is referring back to that story and saying, no, I'm not not going to play the God card. I am going to continue to submit to my Father and to depend and trust in my Father. I think two observations here that really stood out to me. First of all, the tempter will try to get you and I to focus on our circumstances and to allow our circumstances to dictate our confidence in God. He came to Jesus when he was weak and hungry and alone and was like, you're the son of God? Like, if you're the son of God, why are you out here hungry and alone? You should do something about that, right? Trying to get Jesus to take his eyes off the Father. But Jesus didn't fall for it. We don't have to fall for it either. The other thing that really stood out to me here is that you and I should expect to be tempted in the areas where we are gifted. Jesus had the ability to turn the stones into bread. He could have done that, but he didn't. He did not choose to use his power and authority to meet his need in his way and his timing, right? We will be tempted where we are gifted to use our giftings and our abilities for our own glory, for our own purposes, for our own selfish reasons. Expect it and prepare for it. Test number two. Test number one doesn't work. Jesus doesn't take the bait. So the devil's like, okay, let's, let's try this again. This is uh, Matthew 4, verse 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Few things here. First of all, the temple represented the hot spot of God's presence and God's power. And so the tempter is trying to get Jesus to like make a spectacle of himself and to force the father's hand to intervene on his behalf. He again attacks Jesus's identity. If you are the son of God. And then, you know, Jesus quoted scripture in test number one. So the devil's like, well, two can play at this game. And he also quotes scripture. The tempter twisted scripture and questioned the father's love for the son. The scripture that the tempter quotes is out of Psalm 91. And Psalm 91 is this beautiful prayer of faith about the way that God protects his people. But what the tempter does is he comes in and he just 
twists it just a little bit, like makes it sound like our modern day health and wealth gospel. Like, you know, if you believe in Jesus, he'll make sure you get a million dollars and all your sicknesses go away and solve all your problems. He comes and he twists scripture just a little bit. But the thing is that Jesus knows the scriptures and he understands that Psalm 91, God's promise of protection for his people transcends this life. And we know this because of words that Jesus speaks later that we have recorded in the Gospels. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. There's a lot more to our eternal protection and care than just this earthly life. In John chapter 11, when Jesus's friend Lazarus dies, and Jesus is talking to his friends and comforting his, his friends, he says to them, don't worry. For those who believe in me, even though they die, they will live. Jesus understands that the promise of protection is not just about this life. So he does not give in to the tempter's attempt to cause Jesus to try to, to test God and God's love for him by creating this arbitrary situation into which um, the father's hand would be forced to save the son, right? The, the son only ever does what he sees the father doing. In John 5, 19, Jesus says as much. And this was not in the plan. Jumping off the highest point of the temple onto the rocks below was not in the plan. So Jesus does not take the bait. Instead, he answers him. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's Matthew 4, 7. Again, Jesus quotes out of Deuteronomy referencing again Israel's failure in the wilderness. And Jesus is like, nope, we're not doing that. This is a new story. We're writing a new story. He refuses to put God into his service and continues to trust and obey the Father. As I was thinking about this and thinking about what does it mean for us to test God and how can we obey by not putting God to the test, I was reminded of my own life as a teenager and I was living in a period of time where I was just again and again and again choosing sin. I was deliberately and intentionally defining what is good for myself, chasing after what I thought would satisfy me. I was completely disregarding God's rule and reign in my life, choosing sin, 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 sin. And I got to this moment where it was all gonna come crashing down, where I was about to, to really bear the consequences of a long season of decisions to not follow God. And I have a clear memory in that moment of praying and being like, oh God, please, please just get me out of this. You know, that's testing God. We cannot live our lives according to our own definition of what is good and completely disregard God's good rule over us and then expect him to swoop in at the last minute and save us from the consequences of our own decisions. In Romans 6, it says that the wages of sin is death. Sometimes I think we read that like, well, God's punishment is death for me, but sin leads to death. That is the natural outcome of a life that continually and deliberately disobeys the good rule of God. Don't put God to the test. Don't put God to the test. Test number three. The devil kind of switches tactics here. 
The first two tests didn't work. Attacking Jesus' identity didn't work. He hasn't been able to trip him up yet. So he switches tactics. This is Matthew 4, 8, and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. The tempter offered Jesus power and authority in exchange for his worship. This was just like a blatant offer of power. Now, there's some really interesting things at play here. First of all, Jesus does not debate the devil's ability to make this offer. Multiple times in the Gospels, we see Jesus call the devil the prince of this world. And the Greek word there is archon. And archon was the title given to the most powerful, like military or political ruler in an area. So the, the reality that the devil had some sort of authority in the world is not really questionable. Jesus doesn't question it at all. The other thing that I think is really, really interesting is that we know Jesus came to rescue and redeem and reign over the entire world. So this offer was something that was for what was already his. But here's what I think the tempter is doing. He is trying to convince Jesus to take the crown through some other means than the cross to take a shortcut, to abandon the ways of God and take a shortcut. But Jesus is having none of it. He responds to him in Matthew 4.10 and says, away from me, Satan, get out of here. This is real emotion from Jesus. And it's very similar to the words that Jesus says in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, Jesus is talking with his disciples and Peter has identified him as the Messiah. And then Jesus starts telling his friends, like, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And in three days, I'm going to come back. And Peter pulls Jesus aside. And he's like, Jesus, no, that will never happen. And similarly to John, who we talked about last week, Peter was a Jewish man. Peter had a very clear idea about what the Messiah was going to come and do. And just like John, Peter was like, you can't die. You cannot die. A dead Messiah is a failed Messiah, right? Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Same exact words for the same exact setup. A shortcut to the cross. The way of God is not the way of this world. God's kingdom is upside down. Honor comes through humility, right? Victory comes through submission and life comes through suffering and death. Satan was trying to get Jesus to take a shortcut and Jesus did not take the bait. He goes on in the second part of Matthew 4.10 and says, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Another quote out of Deuteronomy. Don't chase what the world tells you will satisfy you. Don't take the shortcut that the evil one likes to whisper in your ear will be easier, will be faster, will be better. Worship God. Allow God's ways to become your ways. The tempter will always try to ensnare us in his lies 
He will always try to get us to question our identity. He will try to get us to doubt God's word and God's character. And he will try to get us to take the good things of God for ourselves in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. But we do not have to listen to him. We don't have to listen to him. The battlefield of our minds is where I believe that the evil one is waging war. In so many ways, this is where he tries to trip us up, which is why we need the transformation that is ours in Jesus. In Romans 12, verse 2, this may be a verse that you're familiar with, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. This is Paul's words. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think this is a really interesting command because it's a a work that God does and it's a work that we do. Be transformed. It's a synergistic process where we work alongside God. St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers said, without God, we can't, but without us, God won't. This is something we participate in with the Spirit, our transformation, the renewing of our minds, so that we do not believe the lies of the enemy requires our participation. So how do we do it? How do we begin to unravel the lies that we have believed? The first thing is we need to recognize them. We need to recognize the lies of the evil one. In John 8, 44, Jesus was talking about the devil. And you might expect him to say a lot of things talking about the devil. Maybe things about, I don't know, possession or um, natural disasters or some of the supernatural things that we think about when we think about evil forces at work in the world. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says in John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. All he does is lie. And the same tactics that he used in the garden, the same tactics that he used in the wilderness with Jesus, he uses with you and I today. Anytime you find yourself finding your identity or defining your worth by something other than Jesus, good or bad, you are believing a lie. You are not your sin or your self-righteousness. You are not your success or your failure. You are not your reputation or your resume. You are not your brawn or your beauty. You are not your poverty or your wealth. You are not your abilities or your lack thereof. You are not your past or your sin or your shame or your pain. None of that defines you. But the evil one wants you to believe it does. And he will whisper in your ear and try to cause you to give in to the lie. But you do not have to do it. Recognize the lies of the enemy. And then we can't just recognize them. We have to replace the lies with truth. Because we can't just not think about something. Like if I tell you to imagine Scott Applegate standing on this stage wearing a pink tutu and tap shoes... What are you thinking about? You're thinking about Scott in a pink tutu and tap shoes, right? 
when he's here next week, we should ask him to do like a little, a little dance for us, <laughs> right? But that's the thing. We can't just tell our minds, well, don't believe lies, don't believe lies, don't believe lies. It won't work. We have to replace the lies with truth. In Romans 8, 6, it says, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The evil one's goal is to kill and steal and destroy. He's anti-love, anti-good, anti-God. He wants to see you and I destroyed. That's what he's about. And the mind governed by the flesh leads to death. But the mind governed by the spirit leads to life and to peace. So we need to curate our minds to focus on truth so that our minds are governed by the spirit. There's a great um, quote from a teacher who I really respect named John Mark Comer. He says this, what is discipleship to Jesus if not a serious attempt to curate our consciousness in such a way that over a long period of time we take on the mind of Christ? The way that our minds actually work is that when we think, what we think about leads to our beliefs, which eventually results in our habits and in our actions, what we put out into the world. So what we think about really, really matters because it's like the underlying foundation for everything that comes after it. And when we think a thought, it becomes easier to think that same thought again. And then the things that come out of that, the behaviors, the beliefs, the actions that come out of that become easier to repeat again. And this is for good or for evil. The other day, I was taking my daughter Ashlyn to horseback riding. And the place that she does horseback riding at, we have to go up this like kind of steep dirt driveway. And because we had so much snow and then we had a warm week, that driveway was like pretty muddy. And so, so many people had gone up and down the driveway taking their kids to horseback riding that deep ruts were in the road. So as soon as I turned my car to go up the driveway, they immediately found those ruts. Like it would have been really difficult for me to not drive in the ruts. And that's the way that our brains work and the way that our thought life works. What we think about is what we will keep thinking about. But we can change our thought patterns through the renewing of our mind, through the Spirit's work in us. We can lay down new pathways. We don't have to keep driving in those same ruts, but it takes intention. It takes participation with the Spirit. And we cannot do this on our own. We must remain in Jesus. We must remain in Jesus. We cannot change our thinking, and be renewed without the Spirit in us. In Hebrews 2.18, it says, Because he himself, because Jesus, suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He has been tempted in every way that the evil one will come after you and me. But unlike you and me, Jesus resisted the lies of the devil. He overcame the lies of the devil with the truth of who he is. And his victory, it's our victory. We are still living in the in-between time. We know that Jesus has the ultimate victory and that one day he's gonna return and put all things right and the devil will have no more leash at all. But during this in-between time, after the resurrection, but before his return, 
you and I still have to deal with the annoying buzz of the devil around us and the lies that he tries to get us to believe. But remember, the ultimate victory is ours. As I have been studying this week, I I started doing something that has been so helpful to me. It's the work of a lifetime. It's not going to be over after today. But on my phone, in my notes app, I started a new note, and it just says, lies I believe. And I've been praying and asking God to help me to recognize when I am believing lies about who I am, about who he is, and I've been putting them down in my notes app. And then I've been going to the scriptures and I've been finding truth to refute those lies with. It's been really, really helpful to me. It's been really humbling to me to recognize just how many areas that I give in to the whispering of the evil one. And I wanna invite you to consider doing something similar. This is not something you're gonna accomplish today in the time that we have left together. But today can be a first step. I really believe that this is where so many of us are in bondage. We are believing lies that keep us trapped, enslaved, ensnared. Jesus came so that we could walk in freedom, in peace, and in truth. But because of the lies of the devil, so many of us are staying locked in a cage, even though the key has been given to us. You do not need to be a slave to the lies of the enemy anymore. Anymore. Today is the day. Let's begin walking in the freedom and the truth of Jesus. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We're going to sing Who You Say I Am one more time. And as we sing that, one of the lines in in this song is straight out of John chapter 8. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. You are free. Walk in your freedom. Let's stand and worship and declare ourselves for who we are, children of God, and begin refuting the lies of the devil with the truth of Jesus. Let's worship together.
Jesus, as we go from this place today, I pray that we would begin to walk in freedom and in truth that you purchased for us through your life and your death and your resurrection. God, I pray that we would not believe the lies of the evil one anymore and that when he comes and starts whispering in our ear, that you would remind us, you would draw to our minds the truth of scripture so that we can combat his lies that we would be a people that would usher into the world the good rule and reign of Jesus because we walk in your peace, because we walk in your truth. We love you and we praise you this morning, Jesus. Amen. Amen.